Listening Dog Media. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. professional career spanning nearly 20 years, Jermaine Defoe falls into the rare bracket of evergreen strikers. Currently in his second spell at AFC Bournemouth, Defoe is the seventh highest goalscorer in Premier League history. His most prolific spells came at Tottenham Hotspur, where he was the club's fifth highest goalscorer, and he tops the list when it comes to goals for Spurs in European competitions. He's also scored the most goals as a substitute in the Premier League, as well as 20 goals in 57 appearances for England. But it's Jermaine's work away from football that's captured the hearts of the public. He built a special bond with terminally ill six-year-old boy Bradley Lowry when playing for Sunderland and has received an OBE for services to the Jermaine Defoe Foundation, his own charitable arm serving vulnerable children in his family's home country of St Lucia and in the UK. Jermaine sits down with the Offside Wall exclusives to talk about this and reminisce about his football career to date. The Offside Rule Exclusives with Kate Borsay and Lindsay Hooper. We want to get you in reflection mode, actually. And I, I imagine walking along a promenade and having the beach and the sea nearby. It's, that, yeah. it's good for that. It's good for thinking back. In terms of turning points in your career, when you look back, because it's been a long one now, mm-hmm. still going. And is there a point that you go, that's when things started to change for me? Um, I think I've had a few, to be honest. I suppose in terms of changing, like, for the better when when I, when I came here when I was 18 at that time because I, I was at West Ham and I played in the first team when I was 17 but Harry didn't really want me to be around the reserves he wanted me to go out and get first team experience so I think when I came here and I actually played league football and you know I was scoring goals um, on a regular basis and I've always said like it doesn't matter what sort of level you play I think to have that sort of consistency is probably one of the hardest things to do you know at any level in football and because I, I think because I'd done that I think after that, that's when it sort of like changed my mentality altogether. And I thought, you know what? I feel like I can go back to West Ham and actually go in the first team and sort of like get myself in the team, even though I was really young. But I think that was that was probably the, a turning moment for me in terms of confidence and stuff, because I was still young. Um, obviously, I only played one game in the first team at 17, which is obviously young. Um, but before then, I was playing that under-19s football. But that was like a turning point. That was that was the, probably the first one, to be honest. So a coming of age really, yeah. I suppose. And he didn't yeah. just start scoring, by the way. You scored in 10 consecutive yeah. appearances, which is a record at Bournemouth that's never been broken since. Mm-hmm. So you will go down as a Bournemouth legend, whatever happens. Yeah. Until someone breaks it. <laughs> <laughs> Until someone breaks it, yeah. which in this day and age could be a very long time off. Yeah, yeah of exactly. And what about sort of personally as well? Because I think, you know, people people forget that footballers are real people too. Yeah. They judge you on your performances on the yeah. pitch. They try and judge you off the pitch, but they don't have a clue, do they, really, about what your life's like. What about um, turning points in your younger days, whether it's growing up, experiencing certain emotions? What about personally to you, things, you know, milestones? I think, I think away from football, in my early days, um, I mean, in terms of football, everything was sort of like quite positive, to be honest. I was lucky enough to, obviously, I started at West Ham, came here, Went back to West Ham, you know, playing a good team, so scoring goals really young. And even when I went for a bad a bad spell, because I was still young, so you sort of like get the benefit of the doubt. People say, oh, "Well, we still got time." He's sort of like he's shown what he can do, and he's still got a little bit of time, so it's normal to sort of like go for that period where I don't know, maybe you're not scoring or whatever. But I think away from football, I had a reputation of sort of like being like a ladies' man. 
I had a few stories and stuff like in the papers. But the thing is, it was like, I mean, at the time I was, I was single and just dating people. I wasn't doing anything different to anyone else, any of my mates really, but obviously no one knows about it because they don't care because obviously they're not in the public eye. So if anything, a lot of my friends were doing worse. I never, I never used to go out, really. Never really used to go to nightclubs and stuff like that. Throughout my whole career, I've never, never drunk. Um, so it wasn't like I was coming at nightclubs, falling over, getting in trouble with the police. It's just that thing where they just thought that, you know, he's, oh, he's dating different girls. But I think it wasn't so much the, you know, the number of girls. I just, I just felt like at the time, well, looking back now, it just felt like it was probably the wrong sort of girls because, in my opinion, those sort of girls sort of like that wanted to be famous, that enjoyed being in the line, like enjoyed being in the papers. And for me, the most important thing was my football. Um, being the back pages of the, of the papers, not the front. But when you're young, you're naive. You don't really, you sort of like just, just go with the flow, take it there as it comes. And even times when I was sort of like getting stitched up, if you like, because I remember going places and, and coming out of restaurants where there was paparazzi there and I was like, that's a little bit strange. How, how would they even know I'm here? But obviously years later, you, you, you get to understand and, you, and you're told that, you know, these, these sort of girls are the ones that sort of like would phone the paparazzi and say, listen, I'm on a date with Jermaine and stuff like that. So but I just believe it's, it's part and parcel mm-hmm. of sort of like being in the public eye, being successful, doing well. Um, but even then, I tried not to let it get to me until you sort of like, you see stuff and people start calling you stuff like love rat and stuff like that. Um, when I didn't feel like I was sort of like doing anything wrong. You think that some people listening to this will be only too aware of what the tabloids can do, but actually yeah. some will be listening and going, actually, I had no idea that that sort of thing happened. But when you talk about those wake-up moments and certainly in your personal life compared to what you were saying with your, your wake-up when you were having your career yeah. heyday here at Bournemouth and realising actually that regular league football. When when did the personal one come? Did that come so much later? Were you like, oh, I've woken up to that now. I'm not going to be doing that anymore. Yeah, because obviously I mentioned before, I was quite naive, to be honest. I was sort of like, uh, I would sort of like give people the benefit of the doubt, even like when, so I don't even want to mention people's names and that, but even girls that after, you know, Alexander, like or even before that, who are sort of like dating, I don't think I went into it looking, thinking, oh, do you know what? They're in a public eye and, you know, I'm just going to, I don't know. I just, just went with it. I was just like, whatever. You, you know, if I, yeah, if I, if I, if I, if I like their company and I find them attractive, then yeah. we'll see, we'll see what happens. Um, and that's just me, to be honest. Maybe too loving, but like, mm-hmm. I don't know. So, but then as I sort of like, um, I remember, in, I think it was 2010, I did like a live stories. And it was quite funny because after, when I did that, like the feedback and stuff like on like social media, um, even when I was just like walking down the streets and a lot of people come up to me and say, oh, do you know what? We never knew you was like that. I look at you in a different light. Just like even after games, I'd go in the lounges and, and all different types of people, different age groups, people come up to me and say, I watch your life stories and like, it made me cry. It was unbelievable because you get to see me talk about my, my nan and granddad, obviously my family, my foundation that I launched in St. Lucia in the Caribbean, just everything away from football, just me. Um, and that was, I, I think that was a big moment for me. I just thought, well, I'm not changed people's perception, but I think... Now people sort of like understand me more. It's important that I try and, well, obviously no one's perfect, but it's important that I, I, conduct, I conduct myself in a certain way. You can't make the same mistakes that you made when you was younger. And to be fair, my mum won't let me get away with it anyway. So, <laughs> so yeah, that was, a, that was a massive turning point. When I did the live stories, I enjoyed doing that and that was good. You have this brilliant relationship with your mum. She's, she's a narrative throughout the whole of your career as well. Did she actually go out to Toronto with you when you went out to the MLS? Yeah, because when the, when the opportunity came about, and I spoke, obviously spoke to my mum because she's always the first person I speak to. And she just said that, well, obviously I'm going to miss you and stuff because like, it, was, it was a four-year contract and that. And what we managed to do, me and my agent, is actually speak to the football club and in my contract, get the club to sort of like, um, like get my mum a house, which was on the same road. Um, so she's sort of like, she's there and she's sort of like, obviously doing her own thing, 
because uh, we had we've actually got family in Canada, but obviously being near me, so it's sort of like that's that's what I'm used to. That's what that's that's what I've had from day one. And I think if I'd have gone over there, not with my family, that would have been quite difficult. I can tell that you spent a lot of time with Harry Redknapp because you're good at these negotiations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in that street. Yeah, of course. Harry sort of like he taught me from day one. I mean, with Harry, it's just like. I was with Harry from what sixteen, and I've you know he's from the East End. That's what we're like. So yeah. <laughs> you got yeah. you got you got to be streetwise. Yeah, I'm going to go back to your private life, but this links into your mum as well. She would be a hard act to follow. Like if you were looking for a potential partner, trying to find someone with the strength, the presence, and the yeah. connection that you have with your mum. That's hard, right? You 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 can't you can't you would never be able to to be honest. Because remember, with, with me and my mum, it was sort of like from. So my mum died split when I was two, and it was just before my sister came along. It was just me and my mum. So that bond was from like day one, where even at a young age, where I literally told my mum everything. There was times where, when I was younger, when I'd have like girlfriends, like you do when you're young, and there were other people sort of like that would say things to my mum like, "Oh, he's too young." But I'm saying, but at the end of the day, at least I can see what he's doing. He's honest with me. At least because there was a lot of a lot of times where a lot of my friends were doing stuff that parents didn't know. You know, they were on the streets getting themselves in trouble, getting arrested and stuff like that. I was never doing that. I was always at home. And we had that sort of like relationship where, like I said, I could I could tell my mum like anything and it's the, it's the same now. And she's strong. She's a strong woman. Um, you know, it's, I don't think it's, it's easy for any parent to sort of like, especially being a single parent and sort of like um, raising a child on your own in East London, um, working around the clock just to sort of like, just get me like the stuff that I needed to play football, you know, standing on the line every Sunday morning, you know, even when it was snowing. At a, my mum had me when she was 18. So even in her early 20s, when she could have been out on a Saturday night with her friends going out, you know, she, she couldn't do that. Well, she could have done that, but she chose not to because she wanted to be there on a Sunday morning to support me. And, and I think that was sort of like, uh, it's not easy to do that. So, so yeah, that bond was just, it's always been there from day one. It is, it is special, yeah. Mm. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Offside Rule TV, for exclusive video football content. Let's bring it back to London, because you you grow up in London, and I think from that point of view, you've already touched on the temptations, because there's obviously such a big city, so much to go and do, so many girls to meet, but also so many other things to get involved with. So that's perhaps the negative side of, of growing up in such a cosmopolitan city in that regard. But what it also did was gave you that football opportunity that maybe another city wouldn't have given you because you've got West Ham on your doorstep. You started out at Charlton. So you've got a city full of football clubs and that must have been brilliant for you. Yeah, I mean, growing up in East London, I mean, it's never going to be easy growing up there because obviously, like you mentioned, the temptations and it it was difficult. Um, You know, I mean, working class background. But all I wanted to do is play football. You know, I've got a footballing family. All my cousins played. You know, my, my dad played, my uncles played. And from day one, my mum's always said to me that if that's your passion and God's given you a gift, you have to try and use it to your best of your ability. That's why even when I played for Simrad when I was eight, uh, then I played for my district, which was Newham, when I was 11. Obviously, I played for the school team. I was training for Charlton at the time until I signed for West Ham. But, I mean, that's all I wanted to do from day one, just just play football. Even when I was at school, you know, I was just always you know, sitting there waiting for the bell to go so I can go and play football in the playgrounds. In the six weeks holidays, you know, never used to even come in and eat. I was just always out because I lived on an estate. I was just always out in a cage playing football with my mates. And to be honest, I wasn't, I wasn't even interested in girls, to be honest. That's all I wanted to do. I said, literally, I said, play football, go home, and then watch, like, DVDs. And I, actually, in fact, it wasn't even DVDs. It was videos. I said, watch the videos uh, of, you know, different strikers, you know, scoring goals and stuff like that. So just, I think I was just, I was obsessed. 
Um, that, yeah, that was obsessed. That's the perfect word. Just obsessed with football. You know, obsessed with like scoring goals. Um, was there a particular player? Ian Wright. Yeah, I loved. I loved Wright. He had all the posters on my wall. You know, I studied all these goals, and and that was and that was, that was it. I mean, if my mum was here, she would tell you like that's that's all I wanted to do is just play football. That's when I was at my happiest, and and I was I was so focused. Not sort of like when I went to West Ham, and then I was focused from day one, even before that, even when I played for my district. Always wanted to score goals. I had that hunger. I always had that fire in my belly. I wanted, to, even if I scored two, I was it wasn't good enough. I wanted to score three. I don't know where it came from. It just I just had it. You saying that? I'm going to pick up on that because yeah. I was in a cafe near Arsenal yesterday, talking with a couple of of League One managers, yeah. and talking about the role of a striker. Yeah. It was interesting because this is a conversation that Kate and I have had with you, your friends with a, a very established goalkeeping coach as well aren't you Kate and we've had the the discussions about how you can coach a goalkeeper and you can take someone from young and you can make them potentially become an England player one day if you coach them well enough but everyone was saying and some of these experts were saying around this table you can't do that with a striker you can't I don't think you can do that forward you can obviously you can look at a striker young striker and feel like ah potentially he can go on and become special and you can work on certain things around the box just to get in good habits you know practicing both feet and stuff like that, heading and stuff like that, movement. But I just feel like a lot of the time, I feel like we play off the cuff. Mm. Um, in games, you play off the cuff, you play the game how you see it. And in terms of like finishing and stuff like that, it's instinctive. Because a lot of times after games, people will say stuff, like, even in training. Like if someone says, oh, why did you do this? I'm like, I, can't, I, I don't know how to explain it. I don't know <laughs> how, yeah, I don't know. I can't find the words to sort of like explain why I did that. And I, I'll have to watch it back because I don't know what I've done. And that's why I love watching match of the day, especially when you've scored. I watch it and, I've, and I'd watch it back and I'd be like, what was I thinking there? Trying to go back into that moment, <laughs> trying to go back into that moment when I've done things and that. And I think it's just purely instinctive. So, yeah, I, I, I agree on, on that comment where you can't really you can't really coach it because it's just it's, it's just natural. So are there many occasions that you've spotted that in someone? Because you've now, we were talking about these two generations. You've, yeah. You're like now part of the next generation, but you've obviously yeah. been there with the, the previous. Between, between yeah. You're, you're almost between these two footballing generations. One is the kind of, I would say, sort of Lampard, Terry. Yeah. And yeah. the other is this new era that, new that era. we're enjoying with Harry Kane and, you know, Maguire and, 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 and all, Deli Ali, all of them. And you kind of sit between those almost, don't you? It is strange, and it was more more strange when I sort of like when I got back into the England squad. Yeah, it was like, wow, this is look, this is strange because when I first got into the England squad, it was like I got a picture at my mum's house. I was at my mum's on Sunday, and then she's got this picture in the living room, and it was like Sol Campbell, Jonathan Woodgate, Lendy King, Jamie Carragher, Gary Neville, Phil Neville, Beckham, Scholes, Rooney, Gerrard, me, Crouchy, Ashley, all that lot. And I looked at the picture, and I was like, how did we, how did we not win a tournament? First yeah. of all. <laughs> And then, and then I thought, like, it's just now when I got myself back into the squad at 34 with the younger lads and how it is, um, it's, just com- it's just completely different. Even the, the, the things that Delhi's doing with his hands and all that sort of stuff, like, so then I thought, can you imagine that someone like, I don't know, Sol Campbell? Yeah. It's just like, it's, com- yeah. it's just completely different. But it's, You guys it's- did, like, hair, hair stuff, right? They used to, I mean, yeah. back in the day, there was a little bit of hair stuff going on. Now there's loads of, I mean, also social media stuff as well social media that's the thing there's no social media now social media is so powerful but I mean it's, it's completely different the English squad now is it's almost like um, when you're there with the players it's like it's like a club environment the way the players are together that sort of bond it's like being at a club um, and sometimes you don't always get that when you go away with England or, or any international team to be honest because obviously at a club you're with each other every day so it becomes like a family 
But I think they've got that, which is so important, which is good. And I think that's why they they done so well in the, in the summer, um, getting to a semi final of a World Cup. But yeah, it's, it's it is strange because even sometimes I'll, I'll I'd watch sort of like um, the Premier League classic games, and I, even if I'm with like a lot of the players, and they're probably watching the game thinking, like, "Who's that player?" And I'll be like, "Ah, oh, I played with him, like Les Ferdinand." <laughs> when some of the boys, like Louis, for instance, Lewis Cook, when he was at school, like I was probably playing in the Premier League. I played with Les Ferdinand. Why you play with Les? Just giving my giving away my age and stuff like that, or Paolo Di Canio or Trevor Sinclair. Um, all these sorts of players. When I first got into the squad, I think when when I made my debut, I think Gareth came off. Gareth played that game against Switz, uh, Sweden, I think it was. Um, and all of a sudden, you're sort of like he's the England manager, and you're wow. playing. So, you know, coming here, you know, I played with Eddie Howe. You know, now you know he's he's, he's the manager at the club and the job that he's done. So it's just when I actually sit there and actually think about it, it's, it is crazy. Were you upset not to go to the World Cup in 2014? Though yeah. I should I should have gone and and. This World Cup, I shouldn't have gone because obviously I didn't play enough games last season. I, I, I fractured my ankle in December. So I didn't feel like I played enough games fair enough. Um, but in 2014, where I remember I went to Toronto in March, but leading up to that point, I was flying for Tottenham, scoring goals on a regular basis, probably more so in Europe, which is a tough league anyway. But I felt really sharp. And obviously leading up to that point, the amount of goals I scored throughout my career... Again, I didn't feel like I had anything to prove and I felt like I could... I'm not saying I should have gone and started, but I could have contributed to that World Cup in a big way, um, especially at a World Cup where, you know, you go into extra time and later on in the, in the tournament you get fatigue and injury and stuff like that mm-hmm. and you need players to come on and make an impact and stuff. So when Roy Hudson called me and he said that you're not in the squad because obviously, you know, I left the Premier League and I went to Toronto... Um, that was his reason. Yeah, I think that was his reason, and, and and he said it's not fair on the players. That, but when when he said that to me, I was like, well, you know, that's the wrong decision. I don't agree, and 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 that was it. But you have you have to, you have to take it on the chin and, and get on with it. But I was of course I was disappointed. Cause I felt like I should have gone. Um, I felt like I should have gone because I felt like I had something to offer the team, the yeah. squad. So. When you dig up interviews with you at the time, because, of, of course, when people speak to you about it directly afterwards, you're a little yeah. bit raw. But it was quite striking because you said. I won't ever get over that decision. And is that something you still feel? Yeah, of course, because when people... Obviously, you need a little bit of luck, but I've worked so hard throughout my career on, on you know, the hardest part of the game is to score goals. And I've worked so hard, like, day in, day out, sometimes on my own, finishing after training, practising. So all that hard work, people always say that when you work hard, you get rewarded. And, yeah, I've had loads of rewards, but at the same time, I just felt like, of course, I made the wrong decision because... When people mention, when people talk about me, they 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 say things like, "Oh, one of the best goal scorers, you know, English goal scorers and stuff like that." So I feel like if I'm one of the best English goal scorers, how come I've missed not only that tournament, two tournaments? Um, two thousand and six, yeah. yeah, yeah. But especially with that one, I just felt like, especially when I was a little bit more mature, um, and yeah, even though I went to Toronto in March, but I mean, the season starts in August, and up until that point, I was scoring goals and I was sharp and I was I was I was confident. Um, I still feel like I should have, maybe I should have gone. You have scored so many goals. I mean, we could sit here and talk about all of the goals that you've scored, but it would take way too long. Um, seventh highest goal scorer in Premier League history. We can talk about all the clubs that you've played for, talk about how many hat-tricks you've got. You scored five goals in, in one game. We could do all of that. But actually, what I want to talk about is the amount of goals that you score as a substitute, because I think that's even harder. Like You're scoring goals, yeah, because I think sometimes, you know, you've got 90 minutes to go out and play and you might get your opportunities over a course of that game and, and, and you know from playing that you have spells in a game, don't you? So sometimes you know that you're going to get two or three chances, then you're not going to see the ball for 15 minutes. As a substitute, how mentally 
I think it's a it, it's certainly part of your character here that you can just perform come on perform and the fact that you did that time and time again you know the yeah. way people talked yeah. about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and the way that he could do that that's it's just I think it's, it's it's many things to be honest I think in my early days it was probably when I was at West Ham I didn't expect to start um, I was lucky enough to come through at a young age and I always knew that because I was so young um, you don't really have to start the fact that you're in the first team and, you, and you're coming on in the Premier League at such a young age it was special anyway so I always felt like you know what I want to make an impact I want to score so I had that sort of mindset um, I want to help the team but as a substitute I never really I wouldn't just sit there and just well, I'm on the bench and have a laugh with the lads I'm actually sitting there watching the game I'm watching the two centre-halves two defenders, I'm watching the forward that's playing, playing before me, I'm watching um, his movement and how he, how he sort of like, how he could get in and, and get the chances and stuff like that. So I'm really studying the game, I'm sitting there watching the game. Um, of course, yeah, I'll have a little bit of banter with the lads on the bench and that, but at the same time, I'm fully, I'm focused like I'm playing because I think, right, I need, to fi- I need to try and figure out where I can sort of like get my chance if I come on. And then obviously when I went to Tottenham and sort of like you get injuries and you can't get in the team, a little bit is you're angry as well. So I feel like, okay, now I need to, I need to prove to the manager I should be playing. For some reason, when you're angry, you find a little bit more energy. But I know, I think it's just a case of being, being professional, being that, that right sort of character where I don't think that if you're, if you're, if you're on the bench, you can't sulk um, and then come on and sort of like go through the motions and, and show the manager you're upset because at the end of the day, you're not doing yourself any favours. Um, then it becomes, the manager can just turn around and say, well, that's the reason why you're not playing because you know you, you get your opportunity, even if it's 10 minutes and you, you're not, you've not made an impact so I think as a substitute I always felt like I always approached it like okay I'm on the bench but I'm going to just sit there and actually watch the game um, and when I come on obviously I'll be fresh and you know especially late on in games where you know defenders switch off and you know especially a little bit of fatigue and, and stuff like that so just make sure I'm sharp on that because when you come on it might be 10 minutes you're only going to get one chance it might be like a half chance and yeah, I just managed to sort of like get into the right areas and, and, and score late goals. So, yeah. We'll talk a bit about the sort of latter part of your career in a little while. But I'm, as we're talking to you, all kinds of questions are kind of popping up in my head. And I thought, my God, you must have worked with some terrific managers in your time. Definitely some personalities as well. And would include the England managers, Capello, obviously, you know, Rednaps. So I liked, I liked Capello, yeah. Because obviously I played... But I just, yeah, best yeah. friends. Yeah, I just, I just, I just felt like at the time when he came in, I was so excited because it's like Fabio Capello. Wow, that sort of like he had that presence. It wasn't even big, you know, just like little guy. But you know, the teams that he managed, the players, um, that was sort of like experience, and it was a like a special manager, um, like his CV and stuff. So I was really excited, and obviously you get called into the squad. Um, so it was it was it was a special time for me, and I remember that season, uh, especially 2010 before the World Cup, where I was like flying. I played, yeah, I played the best football, so confident. Um, and I remember a few times I'd, I'd had conversation. With him. I remember I spoke to him about uh, Ronaldo, um, Brazilian Ronaldo. Uh, that was that was really nice. You know, he said that you know he was like phenomenal when he first saw him. He was like special. But I just felt like he had that presence, and I just felt like you know if you're performing, then you're going to play. It's as simple as that. And when you're playing. There's certain movements we used to work on in training, and and yeah, at times I was like, well, if I'm if I do if I'm doing now, I don't feel like I'm effective. But if you, if you just do what if you play how he wants you to play, then he's happy. So like, I had a, a, a good relationship with him. So I remember one day I was late for a meeting. I, in fact, I missed the meeting because I thought like I was sitting in my room like ready, but like obviously I got all the times wrong, and I've come downstairs and the lads are coming out of the meeting. And you know when you're like when you're at school 
and you're in trouble and you and then you get that funny thing in your stomach. <laughs> oh my god, I was like this. Oh my god, I'm so scared. So I had to I walked into the meeting room. I just basically said, "Oh, sorry, boss." And he just said to me, "Sorry." He said, "Like, how old are you?" I told him. He said, "It's it's it's unacceptable." He said, uh, "Would you if you, if your parents invite you for dinner, like, would you be late?" And I said, "No." Um, he said, "Well, that's it. Um, just just have just have respect for your teammates." And so I respected that because it's discipline. But if maybe it was just something that we wasn't used to, to be honest. Before it was just quite relaxed under Sven and Steve McLaren and stuff like that. It was it was really real, relaxed. So when when obviously when Fabio came in, it was that different different culture, different different. Um, every, even the training was different. Uh, and maybe some of the lads thought, you know what, not used to this, don't really like it. Um, but what can you do? You have to get on with it. I played a little bit of football in London when I when I first came after oh, university. Okay. No, obviously it's nothing at all. But I, I just I'm just gonna try and it's engaging gauging the character. Yeah. So I was a midfielder, I was a set piece taker, and I did a trial for a club. Here we go. I did a trial for a club. I scored three goals and I promise you I only meant one of them, right? They were flukes. I don't know how I scored the other two. One of them looped over the goalkeeper. I was like, I don't even know how I did that. <laughs> now, I know that nine times, nine and a half times out of ten, you mean every single one of them, but do you own up to the ones that you're like, oh, right, okay. No. No, never. No, because it's just like, did goal. you mean that? Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, there's, there's times where players have crossed it. They try and cross it and it goes in, but, or you try and, I don't know, anything. You try and, side foot it it comes off it comes off a different part of your leg and it goes in it looks good and then people are like oh that's a great finish did you mean it yeah but like uh, I think you have to you have to be like that of course maybe I was but, just too honest yeah, I went and told honest. him yeah you're too honest you just got to be like of course I meant it um, and I hopefully you do it again so yeah but I'll, I'll always say no I meant that <laughs> the Offside Rule exclusives are available to download for free via Audio Boom and iTunes should we, should we move on to some of your charitable work? Because the foundation, yeah. how did that come about? So that was after the World Cup, actually. So obviously I came back from South Africa um, and then there was a, a massive like hurricane in St. Lucia. Mm-hmm. And obviously as a kid, you know, my St. Lucian background, uh, you know, as a kid, I was always, I was always in St. Lucia, like seeing my nan and granddad, um, all my like cousins and stuff. So as a family, we sat down and said, you know what, what can we, what can we do as a family to try and obviously to try and give something back or just try and help in any way? And that's when we decided to launch the Jermaine Defoe Foundation. And we, what, what we wanted to do was try and like, build another children's home. And obviously, with those funds, try and you know, rebuild the, like, some of the schools that got damaged and stuff like that. So, you know, we launched the foundation. We had a gala dinner. I had amazing support from, from Tottenham because I was at Tottenham at the time. Amazing, amazing support from the football club. You know, all the players came. Few of the England boys came, so that was really special. Um, but yeah, managed to get some good support. You know, managed to raise funds to actually build the children's home, which which got launched in June. So yeah, I mean, so far it's been amazing. But I think because of the hurricane, that's when we decided to launch the the, the foundation for disadvantaged and, and abused kids on the island. We um, all got to see something special when you developed that amazing bond with Bradley Lowry, yeah. who was terminally ill with yeah. cancer, and has since died sadly. But tell us about the connection with Bradley because that's was pretty unusual really yeah I mean it started I was at obviously at Sunderland and then Louise who was the press girl uh, she just basically said to me there's a young kid uh, he's not well um, and his mascot do you want to like, would you mind walking out of him I was like yeah no problem um, it was sort of like normal process really it's happened before it was yeah no problem it's fine and then I remember being in the change rooms and then I was sort of like sitting there before the game and then the kids come in like they do, uh, get autographs. And, and a lot of the time the kids were coming, they're quite shy. Um, and they would walk around 
And I remember sitting there and I can hear this kid just like screaming my name. I was like, <laughs> I was like, so in my head, I thought this can't be Bradley because from what I understand, he, he's, he's not well and he's sort of like struggling a little bit. So I thought it would be really quiet and stuff like that. So he's running around the changing rooms. I was like, I wonder if that's Bradley. Then he just ran over to me. Obviously at that time, obviously I knew it was Bradley. And then he just sort of like just jumped on my lap. I remember he showing me his boots and stuff like that. And I think it was just like, I've said it so many times, that, that sort of like that instant connection. I, the way, I don't know, it's hard to explain, just the way he looked at me. Um, and I was just like, wow, it was so powerful. And then uh, just from then, really, just after that, I spoke to Louise and I, was, I said to Louise, like, um, I, I started to ask questions like, what sort of cancer is it? Like, what hospital is he in? Um, can I speak to his family? And I remember one day I went to the hospital with two of the other players, Seb Larson and Vito Maloney, the goalkeeper. And I thought we'd go there for like 20 minutes just to go and see how he is. And I went to the hospital and then he said to me, um, I said, I can come and like, sit on the bed. So I just sat on the bed and he, he got the covers and he put the covers over me and he put his head on my chest and he just fell asleep. And then Gemma was like, that's unbelievable. Gemma, his mum, that is unbelievable because before you came, literally he would not speak to anyone. He wouldn't eat and he was just, just like, he just wouldn't, wouldn't respond to anyone and as soon as you walk into the room he's up and then like he got a blanket and then he fell asleep so I was like wow this is really powerful and then um, just went from there so any opportunity I got um, after training I went to his birthday party um, I went to the house spent time with him um, but it was like it was it was special the feeling I got leaving Bradley it was just like it's hard to actually find words I spoke about it so many times and that but it was, re it was really special and something that I never experienced before mm. And yeah, even even that as well changed me massively as a person, massively. Um, and I just wanted to see him all the time. And of course, towards the end, it was it was difficult. And I knew at some point it was going to be really tough because there was times where he'd go for scans in London. Then Jem would phone me, and then you know it's not good news. And I'm like, and then you're sort of like praying. Um, but the support from the public, not just in in England, all over the world, because I was getting messages from like people like in Australia on social media. Um, it was just like an amazing story, but. Towards the end, it was it was it was hard. It was really it was really tough towards the end. I remember that press conference of yours where you broke down. You were here at Bournemouth, oh, signed, yeah. Um, and you were asked about him, and that made me cry as well. I mean, you yeah. you you can't fail to watch that without crying, yeah. because there is someone in the public eye yeah. bearing it all, being very real, yeah. very honest. Mm. And I think ultimate respect to you for doing that. But it also showed just how strong that bond was and probably is because you're still obviously very heavily connected to Bradley's family. Yeah. Where are you now with the fact that you've lost this very special person okay. who is... I'm all right now, to be honest. I, I think I'm probably enjoying my football again because before it was like, it was so fresh and... There was, time, there was times I'd obviously wake up in the morning, and even, even when, not that you want to forget about it, but even when I thought, you know what, I just want to get on my day now. I've signed for a new club. Like, it's a massive um, challenge, um, a new chapter in my life. And obviously you want to you get off to a good start. Even though I was here before, but you want to get off to a good start. Um, and like I mentioned, a new challenge. And, and it was like, I'd wake up in the morning, I'd get like messages, people all over the world about Bradley. You know, I had to do like, I was getting requested to deal with different sorts of like interviews and stuff and I couldn't really get away from it. And the thing is I wanted to, and there's, there was times I'd, I'd do stuff with the family um, and I wanted to give my support. So I never ever said, no, I don't want to do it. I, I did everything. But it was like, uh, it was a t it was, lastly, it was a tough time for me. It was, it, was, it was hard because even when I, during the games, when sort of like um, 
the mascots will come in and I'd walk out. I'm so used to walking out of Bradley, even in that England game. I'm so so used to walking out of Bradley, and all of a sudden I'm sort of like walking out with someone else. So it was it was always in my mind, um, and and it was it's quite interesting because a lot of times one of my cousins messaged me one day and he said to me he messaged me and he said, "Oh, are you alright?" I said, "Yeah, why?" He said, "I watched match of the day." He said, "Your body language on the pitch." I was like, "What do you mean?" He said, "You don't look happy." I was like, "Like nah, you do?" I said, "No, nah, I'm fine." He goes, "You sure?" I said, "Yeah," but looking back now. When, when I'm on a pitch, I'm so happy. That's my happy place. I'm playing. I'm, you know, something that I've always wanted to do, like we spoke about from day one. But it was just like I don't know. I just felt heavy. I didn't feel light like I normally do um, because I wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't happy because of all that stuff that went on. Um, but I felt grieving, like, perhaps. Were you grieving? Yeah. And of course, and because I've been through it before. Obviously, we were like with my with my dad. Um, and even when I was going through it with Bradley, I always felt like I was prepared for it because. Obviously, what happened previously, you know, I felt like I'd prepare, but you can you can't prepare for something like that, especially when it's a little kid involved, where you know they would say things to you and they, they don't even understand what's going on. All they know is that you know every day they wake up they're in pain um, and they can't really enjoy the things that kids should. So, um, but I mean, he was so he was so loving, Brad's. Um, we went to like an awards night in the northeast, and I remember him sort of like I remember cuddling him and even little things, and like I had him and he, and he was sort of like patting my back like this. So I didn't say anything. And then he got my hand and then he put it on his back and he was like, but just like little things he used to do was just like, wow, he was so loving. And he was funny as well because when the cameras used to come out, that little smile and these little things that he used to do was just so funny. Like it was, it was my went to the England game. You know, remember he used to do all this sort of stuff. Yeah, like no one told him there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like, it's not like someone said to him, oh, Brad, you've got to do this. It was just like when it cam- the cameras came, came out, it was just like he knew how to like perform. But I mean, yeah, it was it was tough. But yeah, I'm 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 a lot happy now. And plus, I still have his family around me. Gemma yeah. and Carl, they came, they came to the Everton game here, so they came down on the Friday night. They came to the game on Saturday and they went on the Sunday. So that was nice spending a few days with Gemma and Carl. Um, so still close to the family, which is mm. important. So yeah. Sometimes life happens to you, doesn't it? And it just, yeah, it, it, just it just takes you by surprise. But yeah. you know, just from speaking to you in this and and hearing how focused and obsessed you use the word obsessed you yeah, were with football, obsessed, yeah. there can't have been many things in your life that have rocked you from it. Yeah, I was never rocked ever. Even the times when we spoke about, like when I was in my early days, and I see things in the papers regarding girls and stuff like that. And this was on a like uh, on a Saturday morning before the game, go out perform because I thought, you know what. It's, it's a negative I turn into a positive I don't care I scored two goals today and, and I, I approached it in that sort of way like I'm strong nothing's going to rock me sort of thing you know um, but with that like I mentioned before nothing can can, can prepare you for something like that yeah. that was a big thing in my life um, but even then when people said things like I'd be walking around a supermarket and even people that didn't even, probably didn't even watch football would come up to me and be like and probably looked at me and thought is that that, that boy that was involved with Bradley and they'll come up to me and they'll thank me oh thank you for, you know the way you treated Bradley and stuff like that I'm like like why are you thank why are you thanking me? I don't like. <laughs> yeah, I understand that I was I was there for him and the family, but at the same time, it's sort of like he was the special one in it because I mean to go through that. Um, any any cancer patient, to be honest, mm. I had it with my dad where I'd go to hospital and I look at him. I feel like you have to be like strong to go through something like that, and life's precious, and you never you never you never know what's around the corner. But but the fact that you know I spent some great some great moments with Brad's, you know, is you know I've obviously got them all in my all in my head and you know and like I mentioned the most important thing for me now is to obviously support the family mm. um, with their foundation uh, and and yeah but it was a, it was a special time but obviously it was hard yeah so given that attitude and the fact that you embrace life and what life throws at you whatever it is and and you're going to 
being one of those people, I think it's probably part of your faith as well, is it? That, yeah. that you're, you're going to be one of those people that responds. Yeah. Bringing this back round to football, let's talk about England for a second. Yeah. Is your viewpoint that England retires you, you don't retire England? Of course, yeah, because if, if if it's a situation where the manager, you know, the manager says, well, I don't need you anymore, then it's no problem. I've been there, I've done it, I've had my time. And and it comes to a point where you have to be realistic. It's about the new generation, the younger players that are doing well. I can understand that. But for me, I don't feel like, and I've never been one to sort of like give up on anything or say, you know what, no, I've retired from that. I don't, if I'm selected, I'm, I'm not going to go. I, I choose not to go. Um, but everyone's different, to be honest. Everyone's different. Mm. I think for me, where my obsession with football, well, even now, I still love football. I get up in the morning and I'm buzzing for training at the age of 35. It's a little bit strange, to be honest. So, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, of course. But, like, um, if it, like, so regimented, everything I do, I want to eat at a certain time. Like, Rachel said, Rachel said to me the other day, I was like, she went out somewhere and, uh, I was like, Rage, where are you? She's like, why? I said, I've got to eat at seven. She's like, babe, you need to relax. Like, <laughs> like why, do you, why does it have to be at seven o'clock? She goes, you need to just chill a little bit. I said, you know what? Maybe you're right. But that's just the way I am. I love my football. And when I'm at home, I watch all the games. Um, now I'm doing a little bit of pundit stuff. I enjoy talking about the games. But yeah, so um, yeah, it's, I, I've never ever thought about, you know, one day I'm just going to phone the manager and say, you know what? I don't want to play for my country anymore. It's, it's, if I'm not selected, I'm not selected. That's, that's, that's it. I'm going to pick up on when you were saying to some of the, the guys here around Bournemouth and you were like pointing at Premier League years gone by and going, oh, yeah, I used to play with Les Ferdinand. Yeah. And now I was just going to bring it because like in terms of England teammates, you've now got Stephen Gerrard and Frank Lampard going into management. So what, what have you made of that? I think it's amazing, to be honest. I think it was always going to be the case with, with Stevie G and Frank because um, two natural leaders and unbelievable careers, um, you know, both been captains. And to be honest, two people who, who still love the game. They still love football. I mean, I was with Frank at West Ham from a young age. Um, you know, again, that sort of like his upbringing from, you know, his dad from the East End. And, you know, he's such a nice guy, Lamps. You know, he's honest and he loves his football. Um, so I think with Frank, he was always going to go on and be a manager. Uh, Stevie, again, the same, you know, Liverpool lad, you know, loves his football, a leader. And to be honest, even when he was captain of England, he wasn't really... He was vocal, but I'll say more vocal on the pitch. But I feel like sometimes some people, you know, when you've got that presence, you don't need to say much. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he had that. Um, you know, you get some players, you know, they're screaming and stuff like that. And you think, you know, but Stevie was just calm, but he had that presence. Um, and I remember we had that with, um, with Ledley King at Tottenham. He was so quiet. He was so quiet, Ledley, and, but he just had that presence. He didn't, he didn't, he never have to say, you know, when Ledley... When he's got the armband on it and he leads the team out, you just know that you know you've got a good chance of winning the game because um, he was special. Would you have liked more opportunities to have captained sides? Yeah, but I think I think when you look at the history of football, um, it's weird though because a lot of forwards are not normally captains. Mm. When I look at the greats, like if I if I think about the forwards I used to watch, um, like the Ian Wrights, he wasn't captain at Arsenal. Obviously, Tony Adams um, was captain when he first went there. You look at people like. Natural goal scorer like Robbie Fowler, um, he wasn't. You know all these sorts of all these sorts of great players, the Les Ferdinands. You know, um, so it was more like sort of like the back end back end of their careers, like the Alan Shearers when he was captain at Newcastle, probably right a little bit at Arsenal. Um, so uh, I think with me, I was captain at Sunderland. Well, John O'Shea was captain, um, and towards the end when when obviously John weren't playing, I was I was a captain, and it was it was nice. It was different because. It's now it's not just about you, it's about the team and helping others around you. Um, but I enjoyed it, to be honest. I enjoyed it. 
but yeah, it's 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 uh, I always and I've always said anyway, it doesn't matter who's got the armband on. You have to sort of like at some point in games, you you always everyone has to be like a captain. Have you considered coaching badges, management? Because clearly, you're going to have to do something to do with football because you love it yeah. so much. It's it, you know you are still obsessed by it. Yeah. We joked earlier, didn't we, about you playing until forty, right? But remember, Easy. you can't teach that ability to finish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just try coaching that. And about players. I'd have, you know, I'd have my iPad out on the training pitch and, and they'd be like, yeah, but I'd be like, okay. Watch this. this. Yeah, watch this one. This, this is the goal against. <laughs> but no, I try it. I did a little bit at, at Sunderland with the, with the younger lads after training. Naturally, I would just sort of like uh, pull the younger lads up and we'd do finishing. I was, and even now, when we like do a finishing session, I'd always give my opinion and say, well, I think that if we did this, then uh, I think I'd be better. So naturally, I feel like I, I, I'll be okay at coaching. Um, obviously, it won't be easy. Would no you like to go into management though? Because coaching's one thing, management, management whoa. That's stress. That's like when you start getting grey hairs and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so that's like uh, that many sleepless, younger. Yeah, sleepless nights. And, but again, it's, something, it's a challenge and it's something that I, I, I want to do at some point. I'm going to do my badges. I, I said I was going to do my badges this year. Um, but just to stay in the game yeah. and to give something back to the younger players, I think that would be, that would be special for me, yeah. I just want to finish off by getting your best tapping up story because I don't even know whether this is true, but it, you read around and apparently Drake gave you a call, the rapper oh, Drake, did he, yeah, to try man. and convince you to... They sucked me right in there. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was, I was actually... I was in London with my cousins. We was having dinner and then my phone rang. But I remember my agent sent me a few weeks before when the negotiations were going on with Toronto that... My agent just said, oh, Drake wanted your number for when you get over there, whatever. I just said, okay, cool, no problem. Then we was having dinner, then my phone rang. I was like, it's a strange number. So I left it. It called back and then I answered it. And the person was like, hello. It's like, hello. And I was like, who's that? It's like, it's Drake. So I thought it was like, I thought it was like one of the lads. I thought it was like Aaron Lennon and the boy is winding me up. I was like, that's a great accent. And like Canadian accent. I was like, nah, that's not Drake. I was like, really? It was like, yeah, it's Drake. I was like, okay. So I started asking questions. I said, are you in London on Thursday? Because he had a, um, he was touring. He was like, yeah, I'm coming over the weekend, blah, blah, blah. And he started speaking. I was like, oh my God, this is Drake. Yeah. And it was just like, and he basically just said to me like, you know, everyone's looking forward to you to coming over. It's an amazing city, Canada. You know, Toronto, it's amazing. The football club, you know, go and play, all this sorts of stuff. Um, when you come over, you know, I'll take you out and all this sort of, I was like, wow. Um, but, but yeah, that happened. Yeah, he called me and then... Um, yeah, it was just it was it was Did crazy. Did he follow up on it though? Did he? Yeah, and it was nice. And then what happened is the football. What they done is they flew my my family over, my mum, my stepdad, just to see the training ground and stuff like that. I was obviously at Tottenham at the time because the season starts in March, so I didn't really have opportunity to go. Um, you know, I signed over here and then I went. But like, um, so my family went over, and then my mum phoned me, and she said, Jim, Jim, I've just received um, flowers from Drake in my <laughs> in my hotel suite." I was like, "What?" I was like, "This is unbelievable. It's, it's crazy." So obviously. You know, like he would, I'm going to change. I've told all the boys. They're like, really? I said, yeah. They're like, well, if I was you, I'd be gone, sort of thing. But it was, nah, it was nice. Um, but, but yeah, that's a true story. Wow. <laughs> the Offside Rule Exclusives is produced by Offside Productions and edited by Lucy Lavery. Sports Social Podcast Network.